The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor for the Federal News Network, and we're going to just, it's our typical uh, procurement potpourri, I think, show. Uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. I always appreciate being here. It's always good to catch up. Okay, Jason. Well, there's a number of interesting topics and issues uh, going on out there in the marketplace, uh, but first, let's uh, recap a little bit of uh, Emily Murphy, administrator, GSA Administrator Emily Murphy's hearing last week. Um, your thoughts? I was really hoping it was going to be more about acquisition and less about the FBI headquarters. And, Roger, I'll just like to tell you, I was wrong. Well, you and me both. I was hoping it would be a lot on acquisition, too. I was there. I tweeted, uh, did some live tweeting through it, and, and one of my tweets was said, uh, 75 minutes into the hearing, we get our first acquisition question. So I celebrated that with a small tweet. And that was like almost the end of the hearing. That was that almost yeah, right. the end. The whole hearing was only about 80, 83 minutes right. or something. And, and I think that's a missed opportunity. Like I understand the FBI headquarters and I understand why lawmakers want to look at it. It's a big project. There's a lot behind it. There's a lot of, at least from the Democrats' perspective, a lot of concern about White House interference. But – Come on. It's the GSA administrator. No one else could ask a few questions about $500 billion acquisition budget that GSA plays such a big role in. No one can ask about the all the technology modernization efforts that GSA plays a big role in. No, no one could even ask about other public building service projects. You know, They have a $10 billion fund or, or something to that effect that they're rehabbing courthouses and ports of entry and federal buildings. And literally, it was all about the FBI headquarters. And the, as I said in my story, uh, poor Emily Murphy was ping-ponged back and forth between uh, Democrats wanting to know what the White House involvement was and whether the president made the decision and the Republicans going, so help me understand this. So the president in 2010, before he was president and kind of playing the devil's advocate side and, and you know, it was good drama, but I'm not sure it was very – worthwhile from a perspective of oversight. Like, I get why the Democrats are doing it, Roger. It's, it's not a – they shouldn't or shouldn't be doing it. But I'm just saying that they could have used the time wisely because 90 minutes or so with Emily Murphy and one question on acquisition. Yeah, it was an interesting hearing from that regards. But that one question or question – set of questions on acquisition were all around – uh, the e-commerce initiative, the Section 846, um, specifically questions about – uh, it was prompted with initial questions about healthcare products and whether or not they should be sold via a platform. Um, and in, in fact, I think she made a little bit of news there because she seemed to say they're going to have multiple pilots. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is while Congress called for that, we've only seen them talk about really one pilot to start with. And she seemed to insinuate that there would be multiple. Did I read that wrong? Um, you know, the devil be in the details, Jason, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I'm not going to put – but the real issue – fundamentally is uh well one of the big issues is um it's great to hear they're going to do multiple pilots that's uh, you know in furtherance of full and open competition and and the purpose of the whole pilot is to do a proof of concept and you've got to do multiple i think to get a sense um to validate what you're looking at 
But the real issue will be, and what you should be looking at, is whether or not GSA is going to be doing a pilot solely focused on the e-marketplace uh, type platforms or whether it's going to be more inclusive, consistent with the law, and include the e-commerce platform and the e-procurement platform. As you may recall, GSA, in its initial report, looked at the statutory language, which is very expansive, very broad in terms of what type of plat- what is the e-commerce platform, um, which was a significant change from the initial language. It was very narrowly drafted to only essentially define it as an e-marketplace where that's that's sort of the Amazon-type model. Uh, Congress ultimately changed the statute, broadened it to include not only the you know e-marketplace model, but also e-commerce, which one you could think of as uh, companies selling on on their own website, you know, with under their own label, and then e-procurement. You can think of that as software as a service or software establishing business rules. Think SAP, Reba, you know, Travago, those type of things. Uh, where they go out and search pricing and you set the business rules with the criteria for what you're looking for. So to have an expansive pilot, it should include all three types and not narrow it artificially or uh, unreasonably narrow it to the single to a single type. Whether it's any of the three, it shouldn't be one. It should be all three types included in the pilot. What's also interesting about this is – GSA is due to send a report to Congress. I think it's it's the follow-up report. Yeah, it's this month. It's, it, it should be this month. Later uh, this month. Yeah. So that will be really uh, when you talk about the proof will be in the pudding. The rubber will meet the road, or whatever other cliche we can throw out at each oh, other. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw. It will be the devil will be in the details. It will be. It's on to Cincinnati even. Like okay. <laughs> I think I think that's going to be a key piece to to understand what their their plans are going forward, and will they come up with a different set of Pilots, we, we've written about, and you've you've talked about on, on on this show, and also you've written blogs, posts about it for the coalition around different pilots that are ongoing. Air Force has one, uh, and, and I think there's been some others that are out there. And I think those pilots, how they play into where, how GSA moves forward, that will also be something that I'll be watching. Yeah, I think that's a interesting dynamic you bring up, Jason, with regard to the market. There are pilots going on right now out there in the marketplace. The Air Force has a pilot that initially started with six six, uh, Air Force bases. I think it's been expanded nationwide. Um, The Army is contemplating doing a pilot. DHS has done a pilot. And the question with these pilots that, I mean, from a fundamental perspective is, first of all, you've got Section 846. Congress has spoken. It wants to, to this to be examined very closely by GSA and OMB as to what the right approach is to trying to tap the innovation and capabilities of the e-commerce, um, regardless of the type of platform. But these ongoing pilots, you know, raise significant questions about, you know, creating level playing fields, about whether or not actually the pilot should have been con- – awarded in their agreements between a private company um, and the government with and create preferences for use and that sort of thing. And, you know, in my view, as an old-fashioned government contracts lawyer, is that, you know, those technically should have been, uh, you know, entered into pursuant to full and open competition and transparency so that, you know, the public is aware of what's going on because it does impact the entire, you know, marketplace potentially, um, it, it impacts suppliers who who have historically served, um, you know, the the Army or the Air Force or DHS, and you know, where does this lead to? Is it 
going to become a single point of entry for the Air Force? Is it going to be a single point of entry for other organizations? And that's being done without potentially any full and open competition or transparency with regard to it. And since they're pilots, it'll be interesting to see if there's a report issued, what the metrics are. As you're aware, we've done a study, Ability One study, that showed pricing on GSA schedules um, was significantly lower than the Ability One pilot platform uh, through Amazon. Um, and also there was a Navy, Navy postgraduate study that also demonstrated the same thing. So, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see what comes out of those pilots um, and what kind of metrics are established for measuring whether they're successful or not. One of the arguments that I hear time and again about these the need for the pilots is ease of buying. And I think this will lead us down a path later in the program, Roger. I think we want to talk about Section 809 panel as well. And the make it faster, make it easier, make it make it more like we, we do in everyday life. And I think there's some validity to that need. However, there's a balance that's got to strike. And and my question would be to the Air Force or to the DHS or whoever's uh, running these pilots, how are you ensuring you're striking that right balance? It, it, it can't all just be for speed because there's a higher power, if you will, that we have to deal with when we talk about government spending. At the same time, you can't take away from the need of the government to go buy what they need when they need it. I mean, they've had purchase cards for, for 30 years or whatever it's been. And in fact, all the IGs are sending out their annual purchase card reports. Uh, yes. So I have to admit, I've not read them, but uh, it's always interesting that every time this time of the year, you get a bunch of new reports, a purchase card, improper payments. Right. Yeah. Interesting uses <laughs> of the purposes for the card. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, um, you know that's a that's a, a great observation as well. Is that the balance between the ease of use and um, and pricing? Um, it does put pressure on GSA as it rightly should. GSA and GSA Advantage, you know, needs an overhaul. It needs to be much to take advantage of the market uh, differentiator that they have, which is the price and value of the product and the broad uh, swath of commercial items. You know, they've got to make investments in GSA Advantage to make them easier, easier to use. At the same time, I think one, one of the fallacies of this approach about we need to purchase like you or I do with our, you know, we pick up our phones and, you know, go on a site and place an order, we're buying for ourselves. The government is, like any large institution, should be looking to leverage requirements. If you talk to any commercial operation out there, they may use e-platforms for their overall logistics support. But they generally leverage requirements, create you know protocols that their folks use those contracts first before they get kicked out into the open market. That's sort of what category management is uh, is about, actually. And you know, I think you know some of this is at cross purposes, and there needs to be, I think, an overall strategic focus, which is where GSA and OMB are in in, put, in doing their report. The last thing I need to mention about Emily's testimony, it was. Interesting to hear her um, state that they would be, to the extent they're going to do the proof of concept pilot, is that they were going to start with office supplies. Um, that's always the case, right? When they do one of these things, they start with office supplies and then go from there. So, And then the question will be, what is within the scope of office supplies? Does it include IT uh, or not? Um, does it include furniture or not? Um, those are questions that I know lots of people out in the private sector and in government are going to be closely watching. 
Uh, hey, Jason, uh, it's sort of like you're interviewing me on this show here. I, well, that's I appreciate the best, that. That's the best part of why we, why we do this. Yeah, absolutely. So I th- we're up at the break. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for The Federal News Network. I am Roger Waldron. And when we come back, we'll touch a little bit on you know, what's going on at, also at GSA and procurement-wise. You are listening to Off the Shelf on The Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor for the Federal News Network, and we're doing our political, I mean political, I mean procurement. Procurement. Uh, political yeah, procurement. Yeah, it's, uh, one and the same, same in the there's other. There's a P right? in there somewhere. somewhere right? Our procurement potpourri, uh, just looking at what's going on, and let, uh, let's continue talking a little bit about GSA. And, Jason, I know one of the things you're tracking is there's some big BPAs um, that are being contemplated or competed off uh, IT Schedule 70 in particular. Um, what do you see that going on there? Big trend? I would say it's a pretty big trend, and, and I would hopeful it's about this reducing contract duplication and the proliferation of these multiple work contracts. I went back, and it's something I wrote back in 2010 timeframe, you know, why is this happening? It was about the time, if you remember, uh, oh, former OFPP Administrator Dan Gordon required business cases for any multiple work contract that was worth, I think it was over $50 million, maybe started at $100 million, it was going to work down. And I was like, is this the beginning of the end? Because when you we worked with some companies to do a, uh, like a BGov or a Dell Tech. And sure, looked did, at the market. And did yeah. a crosswalk and said, how much duplication is there between contracts? And you saw a fair amount of duplication. Company X was on this contract, was on that contract, was on another contract. So every time it was bid and proposal money spent. So – and I also talked to some people in government, for instance, Soraya Korea, who when she was at, uh, I think it was CBP, mm-hmm. uh, about yes. why the need for their own contract. And, and, you know, DHS at the time was just, I think, moving into Eagle 2. And there's this whole push of, well, we need we, – we're, we're a snowflake, right? We, we, we have needs that are different. It's interesting to see, let's say now about nine years later, those snowflakes are more the same than different and there's this push now to push everything to GSA Schedule 70 as a BPA, which in and of itself kind of worries me, too, because isn't it just a multiple work contract by another name? Yes, FBI or DHS or Air Force are not just you know, running the contracts. They're giving GSA the ability to run the contract, but they're still requiring vendors who are on Schedule 70 to bid again to get on this BPA. So it doesn't defeat the purpose of consolidation. doesn't defeat the purpose of what the schedule is there for, which is to pre-qualify contractors. Now, Roger, if you told me, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to ask each vendor to give us a 10-page white paper to tell us why they deserve to be on the contract, and then if you meet a certain minimum set of criteria, we'll just give you a check mark next to your name or a star or something, and you're on. And that's minimal BMP. But if you're going to do a whole bid and proposal effort, you know, that's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get on a contract that technically you're already on. I'm just, I don't get it. So help me explain. <laughs> okay. Well, the BPAs have been around now for over, um, the t- BPAs on GSA schedules have been around for over 20 years. Um, they, they back in the mid '90s, the uh, with the acquisition reform movement, BPAs were um, incorporated into the regulations to provide flexibility for agencies to utilize the schedules to leverage requirements. So the idea is like, I know I'm going to be buying six thousand computers over the next six months for an IT implementation, rather than you know, doing mechanically order after order and not trying to leverage that requirement to get a better price, 
you know, these blanket purchase agreements were, you know, designed to be competed for that kind of recurring requirement to leverage that to get a better price or deal. And typically they were single award. Over time, they've evolved into multiple award, you know, with the multiple award IDIQ statutory authority. You know, again, it's less costly than doing a full and open competition. Agencies have a great deal of flexibility of how they set up the competition, just as long as they set the rules and follow those rules. You know, Part 15 does not apply. Discussions, you don't necessarily have to have those as long as you treat everybody equally. There's lots of flexibility in the tool, and to the extent they're looking to, you know, leverage requirements and identify a subset of contractors to perform these recurring requirements, I think it's a valuable tool in the toolbox for agencies. You know, that's the whole purpose of schedules, right, in a certain sense. It's a set of companies who have already been vetted at a certain level, and now they're just trying to refine and hone down to those contractors that are going to perform over recurring time a specific set of requirements during a particular uh, period of time. So I'm going to interrupt. What, what's unclear to me, however, is if I'm buying IT services from Schedule 70, and my IT services are generally commodity IT services. We're not looking that specific to a DHS or an FBI, but hey, I need help desk services or I need software development services that are you know just kind of generalized. Sure. Why do I need a BPA? Why can't I just compete it against the schedule? And if the answer is because we don't want thirty five thousand contractors bidding. That's a ridiculous answer. Well, no, no. It's you already you have those thirty five thousand contractors if, bidding up front when you establish the right. BPA. But but if you establish a BPA that has fifteen contractors or twenty contractors, why? What's the point of the BPA? Why not just compete the contract against the schedule that you already have? One a set of pre qualified vendors, and two, you've already not not well, all thirty five thousand are going to bid. I mean, let's be honest. Right. Well, I mean, I that goes to the management of the contract to the, of the program by the agency. I think it, it creates efficiencies and scale when you go through that process and establish a subset of contractors that, to the extent you're ne- at the next level, competing specific requirements um, against the uh, multiple BPA holders, that saves value, time, and money. I, I just don't get it because you're still putting a task order against the BPA. You're still competing with vendors. You're still asking vendors to compete. It, it, w- w- help me with this because um, I think there was sure. a study that was done with with one of the Alliant contracts uh, recently in the last, let's say, five years. Yeah. And they looked at the average number of bids because they were worried at one time that too many contractors on Alliant. And they said the average number of bids against a, a task order on Alliant was like 3.1 or, or 4. Sure. So sure. even though they had 59 winners right. – they still were not. They were not getting fifty nine bids every time. So I think it's again goes back to my argument against duplication and consolidation. Well, they're really doing anything or just creating a Mac by another name, and I think that's a bigger problem for both the vendor community, but also for the the GSA because now they're having to manage something else that's costing them money, which they're going to put a a, a fee on to to pay for the. I'm just seeing this. Well, as a I, I, you'd of have to ask GSA about the fee, whether they're charging anything beyond 075 percent for the schedules. Now, to your point, now it's a tool in the toolbox, and I think there's different types of strategies you can imply, uh, enforce. I mean, the his coalition historically said, and over the years, and even when Dan Gordon was was back at OFPP, we put together a set of BPA best practices, and one of the things we said is, you know, you, your goal should be to get to one, right? Because that's the best way, competition to one, to get to one, leveraging your requirements. That being said, there are circumstances where 
multiple BPAs make sense for an agency. And I'm, you know, and the point is they have to use the tools and the toolbox and the flexibilities to make good business decisions. Uh, uh, you should, you know, well, ideally, you'd get one of the agency folks to come in here and explain why, or get GSA to explain why it does or doesn't make sense. From what I've seen, BPAs have been are a huge and an important tool in the toolbox for leveraging requirements. They are the single award or multiple award, depending on the circumstances, they can be a, an extremely effective tool for agencies. So I think that there is a positiveness to BPAs when they're used for specific things, or as you said, hey, we're going to buy – uh, 6,000 computers over the next six right. months, we're going to have a one one contractor. We make it easy on us. But when you're talking about, a, a, let's take the 2GIT contract from Air Force. It's the follow into the NetSense, NetSense contract. It's a commodity IT products contract. I find it hard to believe why there's a need for a BPA on top of the schedule to buy commodity IT products when you can just go to the schedule and buy commodity IT products. Roger, why is that necessary? And the answer is because, in my view at least, the Air Force believes they're a snowflake and they want their own contract. And they're listening to the administration who wants to do category management and spend under management. And it's just a way it's, – it's another way to get around doing something that's harder, which is just to compete against at the task order level. I have a lot of doubt of why there's a need for a commodity – IT or commodity anything BPA on top of a schedule. Use the schedule. That's why they're there. I think you should use the schedule. I absolutely agree with that, <laughs> uh, Jason. Uh, whether it's a BPA or a set of or, of orders that are competed each and every time, I think th- I leave but you that are judgment. Competing orders I, every time on a BPA, aren't you? You're well, putting a task order against a BPA. Depends right? on how, if you have multiple wards, you well, technically I'm, I'm, should be, but you also have the flexibility within those multiple ward BPAs to establish some ordering procedures that are that provide flexibility. This is why I I'm think not it, where I think it goes to <laughs> the balance between um, you know setting the requirements and the competition, and I think that BPAs are a very effective tool in the toolbox for agencies. Now, year in and year out, BPAs account for almost 50% of all the orders off the schedules program. Um, That's a tool that's allowed agencies to leverage requirements and get greater value. And I'm glad you're, like, promoting the schedules. I I agree. It's a great uh, government-wide program. You know, you fix GSA Advantage. Um, and make it more user friendly. Um, Open up eBuy to everybody uh, like me. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Transparency is the will, will set us free. Um, that's an interesting <laughs> concept. That's uh, we can talk about transparency when you talk about Section Eight Hundred Nine in the next segment. Um, I think, but uh, I don't think it's something that should be precluded. I think multiple award BPAs have their place. Just as single award BPAs, I think it's driven by the program imperatives and the and the fundamental requirements. And I'm not going to say one is verboten over another. Well, you, you can't. Right. So uh, so when we do come back, I teased it already. We'll talk a little bit about uh, section eight. This section eight hundred nine panel report. Uh, some of the uh, the. Um, Readily available uh, dynamic. That's uh, and, and my favorite topic: transparency and transparency. Absolutely. Uh, my guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for the Federal News Network. I am Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor here at Federal News at the Federal News Network. And Jason, um, Section 809. I know there's been uh, the report is issued. I think there um, it's about 2,500 pages long. L- longer than the FAR, by the way. Yes, that's yeah, that's an interesting. Yeah, that'll be a trivia question, but in, in about five years, or maybe it's already is a trivia question. But how, how long was the Services Acquisition Reform Act report? The the, the panel oh, you did remember? Oh, I can't even. It's got a. It's um. I don't know. Marsha Matson kept it tight. Yes, she sure <laughs> did. Um, Yes, it was much, much, much shorter. D- different set of topics, fair enough. Uh, that is, that's very true. Different set of topics, but um, I mean, I think that's the challenge in and of itself of anyone wanting to take a look at it. It's so expansive and so long, and to the extent you know, it's been packaged as like you have to take it, you know, sort of all-encompassing to get a sense of where you know the panel members are trying to go. And make no mistake, I mean, they're to be commended for all their hard work and the time and energy that they put into it because it is, you know, other duties as a sign. Like they had the, most of these folks, at least on the government side were, um, had full-time jobs. Um, in addition, you know, at senior leadership procurement levels in the department of defense in particular. So, you know, that they're to be commended for, you know, their public service and actually working on it. I mean, how much of this do you, do you take as a wish list? You know, in the perfect world, if we could start at zero, I mean, how much do you think that, that what what the folks at the Section 89 panel were doing was saying, if I could reinvent the world, this is what it would look like? I think there's some of that there, and I think there's also some of um, – some. Um, I don't know how to say this delicately. There's, you know, lots of these folks, all the folks, you know, are very experienced uh, acquisition pro- professionals, executives, both in the private sector and in government over the years – and I know they came across things that like really bothered them or made their life more difficult. So I think there's some opportunity. You know, they saw this also as an opportunity to address things that they had personally experienced or dealt with during you know their procurement careers. And being experts, I mean, I think that's not such a bad thing. They they have the firsthand knowledge. I mean, what you don't want is a bunch of lawyers. Hint hint, Roger. <laughs> but I think that you know a lot of times when you have people who are on the ground and. and and experiencing the, the the challenges of the federal acquisition process so that that comes that's where that comes from, and and one of the big things that that I took from this is uh, you know I wrote a long piece about Klinger Cohen and the, the idea of exempting DoD from from a big majority of the Klinger Cohen Act which governs IT management, but I think there's other pieces here and, and we teased a little bit last segment about transparency and I I think that's a big missing piece in federal procurement right now. I mean, I'm frustrated to go back to our GSA conversation about eBuy, and I'm very, very excited that uh, Administrator Murphy and the folks at the Federal Acquisition Service are putting together this eBuy open pilot. It's not what I would like to see, but, hey, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, and I think that the fact is that they are listening, at least to, to, to my complaining a little bit, and, and understand that there is value to open up eBuy to, to, for people to see what's happening on it. Not bid, but see. And I, I think 809 also addresses this transparency thing, but maybe in the wrong direction as well. Yeah, I think this is an area where I think um, the panel you know, could have taken a different uh, you know, perspective on it. And I think it's raised... Um, concerns out there, um, in particular with regard to transparency. 
Um, you know, there's the readily available recommendations that um, are in the report in Volume 3 that came out that talked about creating a whole new framework for transact readily available, um, you know, essentially replaces commercial item definition and readily available with modification. You know, that's a commercial item where you got to tweak a little bit and then there's sort of government unique sort of three lanes. Um, you know, I don't, I personally don't think that the uh, commercial item definition and all that stuff uh, needed to be changed. Maybe there's some tweaks. They already, you know, the Section 809 panel already made recommendations for some tweaks that were actually adopted. But this framework would provide for transactions below $15 million that be no notice requirements anymore, no public announcement requirements, you know, prior to soliciting for a requirement below, readily available requirement, i.e. commercial item below $15 million. And the only notice would be after the award. So the notice would be after award. There wouldn't be public notice prior to the issuance of a solicitation or anything. The government, DOD, would be able to go to any companies that um, they so chose. You know, full and open competition essentially would is, is being fundamentally amended in this case. The, and again, the only public notice would be after award where there'd be notice of the requirement and then some, quote, por- portions of the contract file would be released. And then lastly, that there would be only, you know, in that context uh, with regards to transparency, because bid protests are a form of accountability and transparency, only agency protests would be um, be allowed. I, I don't think that's the right approach here, when, especially when you're talking about readily available commercial products and services, like the stuff that's on the GSA schedules that we're buying in day in and day out, um, providing notice and opportunity to compete, whether it's through eBuy, as you, that you mentioned in the last segment, or whether it's through, you know, a, a FedBizOps notice or a notice on a multiple ward contract that has a bunch of commercial products where you have to provide notice over a certain dollar value to all the contractors to compete, that's an enhancement to the system and provides for that competition and transparency for the public fisc. Uh, and I think that's extremely important. Um, and I don't think it delays. That notice requirement in and of itself is not the issue delaying requirements it's more the government's decision about how to conduct the procurement. Are they making the procurement process in and of itself and the negotiation award more complicated than it needs to be? Or are they incorporating government unique requirements that may not necessarily need to be in the contract themselves? Those are the real, to me, issues in this area in particular. And I see this all the time. And that, for example, your point about eBuy and transparency there. The companies who are on schedules want transparency there too. So, for example, they want to be able to see, uh, you know, notices for other line items because there might be an opportunity for them to team with somebody else to be able to compete. That only enhances value to the government. So, transparency in eBuy, and even these days now with OTAs, for example, there's a real push for transparency with those, and Congress is requiring reports because there's a significant amount of money being spent through those and. You know, in some instances, you know, transparency, if you're working on something that's cutting edge to support a weapon system, you don't want folks to know or whatever, you know, perhaps that makes some sense. And there's, you know, stuff that that we don't know about where NSA or whoever is doing it. But, you know, people want transparency in the OTA process as well. Last year, over $2.5 billion were spent in OTAs, about 351 OTAs, I think, done by the department. And that's a big jump from the year before, where it was about 171 and about $800 million. So it's a growing tool in the toolbox, rightly so, but there needs to be that balance of streamlining and transparency. And the last thing I just say is that, you know, our, our kind of view on this is that, 
you know, that delay and transparency. Transparency delayed is opportunity denied, not just for the private sector, but for the government in terms of you know, potential people accessing and understanding what the government wants to buy and bringing something new to the table. You, make, you bring up a ton of points that I'd love to follow up okay, on. Okay, sure. The OTA one specifically, but let me go back to the 809 panel and, and ask you a, maybe a question that more rhetorical than anything. $15 million is the limit for not needing to, to publicize, not needing to, to, to really go follow the, the typical process. Seems like an awful lot of money. Now, for DOD with, with their budgets of, of you know, a few hundred billion dollars, it, maybe it's not a lot of money. Maybe it's you know, $15 to you and me in, in our everyday life. But for a lot of companies, and especially a lot of small companies that they're trying to attract the innovative companies, the companies that are not used to doing government contracting, there seems to be a, a maybe a that, that's the path of least resistance versus creating a path that is easier, that is less challenging for to bring new companies in, but still follows many of the same requirements uh, that that typical government contracting does. It seems like that they're that the eight or nine panel, one of the things they're doing is looking at the spectrum and saying far right on the spectrum is no competition. I mean, no publicity around the um, requirement the requirement. And then the left side of the spectrum is the current process, which is arduous and awful. There has to be a happy medium in between. And I think that's where this eventually will end up being. But, but I think- uh, yeah, but I don't think the notice requirement in and of itself, which I think is fundamental to the system, is something that delays procurement. I think it's more how the government actually conducts the procurement rather than the notice requirement. And for regard to transparency, I think it's important. Like if you talk to companies who aren't traditional government contractors, you know, one of the things that they they view one one aspect of their concern is whether or not they think the system is favors some over others and. Are you creating a system where there's no notice, public notice requirement up front, and you can pick a handful of companies to go to? Does that val- you know, further validate their concerns, or um, do you, you know, how do you address that? That's an well, impediment to the market. And that's the problem with OTAs as well for the lack of transparency because they're saying let's bring in new contractors, new innovative contractors, and the issue is – you don't. You all. You see who's winning those OTAs are the the traditional federal contractors. Now underneath them may be non traditional ones, but we don't know that because of a lack of transparency. Yeah, well, that's we'll continue that discussion in the next uh, segment, Jason. Uh, we're up on the time. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for the Federal News Network um, here in the studio today with me. And Jason, um, you, we, you started, to, and I guess you, and I can tell you want, really want to talk about OTA, so go ahead. There's a fascinating report from the Project on Government Oversight that Scott Amy just put out. Uh, there's a maybe a little disagreement over the report, but he takes a, a really deep dive into OTAs and really brings up all the challenges and questions around them. And I, I think it's definitely worth your time. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. And even if, as, as some people believe, maybe Scott missed some points or he went too far in one way or the other, I, I think the point of his blog post and his, his article was really to get people talking about OTAs. And, and I think the reason is good because, as you, as you put out the numbers earlier, there's more agencies spending more money on these types of contracts that are really hidden behind this veil of a consortium. What is a consortium? 
Uh, and I know a lot of the, there are consortiums out there that, that do a good job and are valuable. But the problem is when an OTA is awarded or, or a consortium gets an agreement, because they're not really contracts, I guess, and what happens after that? Oh, they're contract. You, they're a girl forcible. They're, I mean, they're, they're contracts by any other name. Yeah. So go ahead. But what happens after that? Who wins it? And, and what companies are being impacted? And which vendors are new to the government space? And what new emerging technologies? You just don't see a lot of this. And, and then the other piece that I think is, is worth noting is these are supposed to traditionally been for, for innovations or, or even, you know, uh, evolutions of technology nasa used it for in the 1950s for the space race and and dod now is using this for the what i would call even commodity it again uh, both the air force uh, um and the the air force has gone out with an ota and i think the army is following suit for what they call network as a service and this is the idea of remember from the the mid 2000s seat management you may, sure. remember mm-hmm. from before that um, yep. Alternative service providers, ASPs, it's the same concept in my view, but in the cloud. So I don't want to have to control anything. I don't have to do anything. I just want to plug in and, and go. So you get a bunch of thin clients or zero clients, and I don't have to worry about the back end. It should just work. I'm not sure why they have to go to an OTA for this. I'm, I'm not sure why that this is uh, something that has to be piloted and prototyped. We know it exists. We, we've seen it happen. It hasn't been very successful in government, but that's not because the technology isn't there. It's for other reasons, control, worries about cybersecurity. Uh, NMCI, for even people hated it, was a network as a service, was a managed yeah, service. Yes. So, again, I'm not sure why they need to use an OTA. And I think, Roger, the answer is because it's easy, it's basically unprotestable, and it's quick. And it, it goes back to there are problems with the federal acquisition regulations that need to be fixed versus just going around them, which is what I see a lot of, not all, but many OTAs are. You're bringing up, a, a, you know, I think a conversation uh, issue or a conversation point across industry and in, within government is like what what are OTAs being used for and are there f- things that should be done through a FAR-based contract being acquired via OTAs, and is that appropriate or not? Um, those are big questions. I think the um, GAO is going to end up looking into this. I think you're going to have congressional hearings. And unfortunately for a tool that people really do find value in, it's going to get a check mark against it. And, and you're going to see a lot of, you know, the spectrum is going to swing the other way, right? The pendulum is going to swing the other way. And all of a sudden there's going to be all this policy and, and rules around it because people – didn't use them in, in, a, in a smart enough way. I'm, I'm not saying everyone's wrong, Roger. I'm not saying OTAs are a bad thing, but it just seems like the pendulum swung way too far, and it's going to come back. I mean, I just have seen it. Oh, yeah, over, I, well, over OTAs are a valuable tool. Make no mistake, they're a valuable tool in the toolbox that um, the department should be able to avail itself of in terms of supporting you know, the warfighter and, and developing cutting-edge technologies. I think to your to your point where people get concerned or where the hill gets concerned is what are you actually using them for? Um, are you are you buying the using the OTAs for purposes that we did not intend them to be used for? And you know that's you know why there's you know Congress um, I think in part put to, put in place some reporting requirements for the department they have to report because it is you know appropriated money that's being utilized for these and there's accountability there. And I think the transparency question goes to, you know, now this production capability on OTAs as well. If you recall the, you know, the the big protest back about a year and a half ago, two years ago on the, you know, on the REN contract, um, 
that was really a question of transparency because there was no notice in the and the protest was success protester was successful because there was no notice in the requirement that they were actually going to do a follow-on production that's a form of transparency the far is not a perfect document um by any stretch i you know there are areas where it can be improved but at the end of the day, I get back to you know what I was told that at one point when I started my career, and I still believe today, is that the requirements in a, are the key to success in any procurement. It, it goes down to it comes down to the requirement, what their requirement is. The processes are what they are. Can they be streamlined? Can things be eliminated? Can the government do a smarter job using its own process? Yes, there's some folks who can, as they say, as some folks on the 809 panel said can make the far sing. So there's opportunities there. Um, of course, when you started, it was the Brooks Act, right? That was the- Yeah, the Brooks Act was, hey, I'm an old guy. I'm really an old guy. Yeah, <laughs> so Brooks Act was still in place, and it was even greater transparency, and the bid protest process was very significant maybe, as well. Maybe on another show, we could we could do a retrospective and look at uh, you know, the impact of FASA and FARA and, and did it have the intended consequences, so to speak, or intended effect? Uh, you bring up requirements, and that's actually the last thing I wanted to just bring up to you was was the old Jedi contract, right? The, the cloud procurement over at DOD that just continues to be a, a wonderful saga to watch from the outside looking in as a journalist. I wrote a recent report about a potential preliminary FBI investigation that has started. It really uh, caused quite a bit of chatter across the community. I've heard from several different people. What's your take on the latest on Jedi? I mean, really, we're still waiting for some some documents to be unsealed from the court case between Oracle and the DOD the, on the protest. What, what, what are you hearing? What's your latest thoughts on that? Well, I'm not really going to comment on you know what's going on with regard to any of the investigations. But I, I will want to – I think – through all this, I think one of the interesting things and the points that I keep going back to and looking at the whole Jedi uh, procurement is that the opti- the key document, the you know, legal document, the FAR required document supporting the decision to do a single award does not use any technical um, basis for making that determination. They, it, the, under the FAR, you could have basically determined that, you know, based on the requirements, only one contractor could theoretically you know, perform the requirement successfully. I'm paraphrasing the language. That's a technical basis. Um, and there were other technical bases that could have been used. But in this case, um, the department chose to use the contract type as the, as the, in the legal document that was far based required mandated legal document. They argued that it was, um, you know, the contract type supported the decision to do a single award. So to me, that's form over substance. And I still go back to, you know, you know that a multiple award approach is in the best interest of you know the department, you know, in terms of redundancy, security, and capability over time. You know, this this is a great saga to watch. Um, I'm looking forward to continue the coverage of it, of course. And uh, you know, I, I still will put it out there again. I'm not sure this will ever get off the ground. I think this will be just even if they do make an award, this will be hung up in protests. And I think DoD eventually will have to rethink their approach. Right. Well, Jason, on that note, we're going to end the show. I want to thank my guest today, Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.